You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York. A community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. Luke chapter 1. Very, very finally, finally we have a cool text for Advent. I was so happy when I read it. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving the church a voice. And I pray that when we speak to the world, something would leap. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I have been beside myself with these Advent texts that we've had. And when we finally got to a Christmas one, I was very excited. I wrestled with why, and I understand the technicality. I understand the reasons. I understand why you don't talk about the life of Christ at the beginning of the Christian year because he hasn't come yet, and you're reading about the preparation for him, which is what we did in the first three weeks. Here's what I think is very, very cool about this text being used for the final week of Advent because Jesus is not born yet, but this is the first time his earthly life ministers to somebody. Still in the womb, but Jesus' earthly life ministers to somebody in this text. It's the very first time you see the earthly life of Christ minister to somebody. And I'll say this. Jesus didn't minister to Elizabeth, and Jesus didn't minister to Elizabeth's baby. Cliffhanger. Stay tuned. We're talking this year about life inside the edges. And when I say this year, we are now in the beginning of the Christian year. So for the rest of this month and all of next month through November, we're continuing the theme of life inside the edges. And I know a lot of us come from a church culture where every single year, he's going to do it again in 2010. He's bringing us heaven in 2011. He's not going to be mean in 2013. Right, like We're used to all this new stuff, and honestly, here's the reality. When the first year God gives me a vision of cultivating, you're not cultivating if you have a new vision the next year. Cultivating takes time, and so we're sticking with it because that's what cultivators do. We stick with something even if it begins to seem a little mundane. Sometimes us Pentecostals, we need to make our eyes bleed with newness. Sometimes we got to stay consistent and disciplined to see fruit that doesn't just pop up quickly, but fruit that lasts when it finally comes up. So we're talking about life inside the edges. We're talking about life inside healthy boundaries, life that is not maxed out on every single level, which is what we're all very capable of. And so Jesus is what life inside the edges looks like. Jesus' life is the life that is lived inside healthy boundaries. And so this whole year, we're going to be looking at the life of Christ because here's a principle that you will hear me say all year long. Jesus is what God is like. 
if you didn't have the Gospels, you would only know what God does by reading the Old Testament. But you wouldn't know what he's like. Jesus is how we know that the God who does things, Jesus is how we know who he is and what he's like. So whenever you read the Old Testament, you need to say, this God, how do I reconcile what I'm reading with this Jesus? Because Jesus is Emmanuel, which means God with us. So this will make you do, like, we have to learn to read our Bibles backwards. Sometimes we should start in Revelation at the beginning of a year and read it the other way. That by the time we get to Genesis, we know what the God who created the world is like. I think. <laughs> so I have to ask myself every single week when I preach from the gospel this year and we hear something about Jesus, we have to say this is what God is like. So here's what bothered me, and now I know why it bothered me, because I'm a sinful person. This is why those first three weeks bothered me, because here's what God is like. Jesus doesn't show up before he's announced, and Jesus doesn't show up before he's prepared for, because God doesn't want to show up unannounced, and he doesn't want to show up to an unprepared people. This is just what he's like. We've said it before, he's only a thief in the night to people who aren't paying attention. He's an invited guest if you know he's coming. Mm. So, of course, when we see three weeks where it's not even talking about him yet, it's just talking about preparing, here's what we know. We know that actions without preparation is life outside the edges. Just doing things without being prepared to do them is not a healthy lifestyle. And so for three weeks of Advent, we're preparing for this life that is going to make demands on us and save us at the same time. We're showing life inside the edges doesn't start with life. It starts with preparing for the life. So what are the three ways that we prepare for life inside the edges? It takes preparation. What's the first week? The first week of Advent talked about his return. Didn't even have anything to do with his birth. Because the first way that you get your life inside the edges is to know the end. Know where you want to go. Know what the goal is. You can't discipline yourself for something you don't know what that thing is. This is why we burn out at the gym, because we don't have a realistic goal for going in the first place. We just think it's healthy to go. It's not healthy to go without a goal. That's why everybody goes in January and it's empty in April. And that's being generous. We don't know. We don't have a goal. You need to know the end. That's why the text, the Advent text began with he's coming back. Because Jesus coming back should set the standard for how we prepare ourselves. He's going to come back and he's going to sit us down and talk to us about what we've said. No! This is not good. It is because he's also Savior, thank God. At the same time, we need him to be both judge and Savior. Because I'm thinking the Savior part is going to be more important to me when I'm standing in front of him. Just please remember that you're also Savior when we have this conversation. I'm going to tell you what I said. Please remember that you're Savior. Know the end. Don't start disciplining before you know what you're disciplining for. And then week two is not prepare the failure, but prepare in the failure. Week two is prepare a way in the wilderness. If you're going to get your life organized on any level, financially, emotionally, energy-wise, relationally, commitment, whatever it is, you have to say, 
where are the areas where I'm just overflowing the edges, where I'm not organized, where it's all going wrong? Where are those places? And I'm going to go stand in the failure, and that's where I'm going to start making preparations. I'm not going to go to my best side because that's already working. I'm going to go to the part of my life that is in excess, that doesn't have any temperance, that's out of control. And I'm going to go to that place and start to prepare there. Because if I don't prepare there, if I don't put up high banks for the flood, it's, my good stuff is going to get flooded out also. So prepare in the wilderness. It doesn't say prepare in the garden the way of the Lord. That's already working. Prepare in the wilderness. And then what does he say week three? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So I know the end first. And then I go and I identify the failure and I go to it. And then I actually start to name out loud what that failure is. Because here's the reality. If I just look at my failure but I don't physically say it out loud, I can kid myself into thinking it's getting better when it's not. There's a reason why it says confess your sins one to another. There has to be people in your life that you can say, here's where I'm out of control. I need to put it in the light as he is in the light so it's actually accountable. So I have to know the end. I have to know what part of my life is keeping me from getting to that end, and then I have to be able to take responsibility for it. And this last part, I think, is where we mess up. We don't take responsibility. You ready? Here's what we say. I'm going to try harder. That is not taking responsibility. Because when you say I'm going to try harder, what you're saying is what's done is done. I'm going to try not to do it again. But you're not taking responsibility for what was done. There has to be an acknowledgement. I know that how I've been doing this isn't right. This isn't the best life possible. And I have to take responsibility and maybe allow consequence to actually be refreshing as opposed to terrible. I'm learning the deeper I get into the life God has called me to, that the times where he slows down and chastises and disciplines, I'm the most grateful for almost than any other time. Any chance, I'm just, this is me and him, any chance you have to save me from myself, I'm all ears. Please. Know the end. Prepare in the failure. And name the reasons for the failure. That, those first three weeks are getting us to the part where we can now look at the life himself and say, how can I live like him? How can I live inside those edges? But here's what we know about God. God is the kind of being that doesn't show up before there's announcement and preparation. So we need to be the kinds of people who verbalize where we want to go and prepare to get there. So much of our excess is simply a lack of announcement and preparation. If somebody stops you and saying, what is all this work for? What is your end game? You're a teacher. You work. You do all these things. You have kids. Just What's your end game? What is the goal of all of this thing called life? Most of us would have trouble answering that question. Or we'd get Christian real fast and be like, the goal is Jesus. <laughs> and then the person should say, I understand that, but like, Let's, let's be adults and have nuanced answers. And we're stuck. We have to know. He's telling us. We have to know. Where's it all heading and why? How did I get here and why? These are important questions to wrestle with this year. Where is it going? And do I want it to keep going there? And how did I get here and could I have avoided it? This isn't about chastisement like we said this morning. We are working from love, not for it. 
That's why we have the safe space to say, here's where it went wrong. I'm not being, God has not cast me off. Because he's accepted me, I now have vision to see where it went wrong. We're safe. I can't move on if we don't get that. We're safe. Confession to God is safe. Because there's already forgiveness been deposited in the account. So you're free now to take a ledger of the past and actually pay attention to it without guilt or shame, but with conviction. We have to know that. We have to not just move forward and forget about what lies behind us. That's not what it's talking about. I need to take responsibility for what lies behind me in the context of his acceptance of me. In the context of the fact that he's going to heal the people I hurt to get here. And feel that for a minute. There will be a day when every tear is wiped away, but it's not yet. So sometimes I still need to grieve, not my sin that's already forgiven, but the damage my sin has caused. And again, we have, to, we have to make nuance out of these things. We can just sit there and say, we don't need to grieve over our sin. I don't need to grieve anymore that I have sinned against God. That symbol has taken care of that. But it, shall, it still should sting a little when I think about what I've done to others. Until God brings full healing, there should be a part of me that learns from that every day. And that's not super fun. I still, I, Merry Christmas. The presents are coming in two days. We're going to have a really good time. Like, all the, all the you know, Scrooge and everything, like, we're, we're going to have fun. But we have, to, we have to keep it real for a minute. We have to know. I love what Elder George said. We can't walk around like this is costly. We have to walk around like it's precious. Oh, it's costing me so much. Oh, man, I'm just laboring in the Lord. It's precious because we don't know what we're saying when we say thank you for forgiving me. We will never know the weight of those words. Our wildest imagination can't keep up with the weight of those words that we're forgiven, that we don't need to be self-reliant anymore. Let's talk about that right now. In this story, whenever you read a story in the Bible, especially in the Gospels, be every character in the story before you stop interpreting it. Do not interpret a text before you're willing to be every single character in the text. Trust me, when you're always the good guy in the text, you'll come up with a doctrine that says one thing. When you're willing to be the bad guy in the text, all of a sudden your doctrine will get a lot more generous. Like be Goliath before you're David. Be Judas before you're anybody. Stop saying, I'm, I, I feel like I'm a lot like Peter. We're all a lot like Peter, but we're all a lot like Judas also. And Caiaphas and Pilate and Jesus and all of them. Be everybody before you start interpreting a text. I don't even know what I'm preaching. I'm like, what are we doing? Is it Sunday? <laughs> when you pray in a room... Week after week after week, there just starts to be some, some funny stuff in the room. And I, I just, there's so, I, I feel like this sense of germination so much in the last couple of weeks while we're talking, while we're praising, while worshiping. I, I just, I feel like things are clicking at Salem right now. Am I alone here? I feel like it's clicking right now. It's a very, very exciting feeling. Okay. So in all of these characters in this story, we see what life inside the edges looks like. So let's start with Jesus. Not even born yet. I will say this. Unborn Jesus is a better man than I am already. I was, very, I was studying this person that's still in a womb, and I'm like, he, even in a womb, he's doing better things than I've ever done in my entire life. This is, what do we see 
about Jesus in the womb. The first thing, what is life inside the edges? Life inside the edges is a shared life. And what do I mean? A little bit of philosophy, just a little bit. Jesus is what God is like. So I go to the text, and what do we see Jesus right now? Right now in this text, Jesus is still in Mary's tummy. He's still kicking. So that means that Jesus is completely dependent on Mary. If Mary died, Jesus would die. If Mary stopped eating, Jesus would be malformed. So you have to ask yourself this question. The God who's not dependent at all is revealed as someone who's dependent. How is it that the God who came to bring mercy is now at the mercy of everything Mary does? How is it that the God who doesn't need anybody has now fully manifested himself as someone in the most kind of need you can ever imagine? What does this say about God? Here's what it says about God, and here's what it should say about the church. God is the kind of being that even if he doesn't need anybody, still wants to share his life with people. He doesn't share his life with people out of need. He shares his life with people out of love. Need should not drive our relationships. There'd be a lot less haters in the world if love brought us together and not what can I get from you. It's the shared life is the humble life because God doesn't need Mary, but he allows himself to need her. He puts himself in dependence on other people as a free choice. This is why the creed says begotten, not made, because he doesn't need to make this choice. He chooses to be made. He chooses to be dependent, and the fact that he can choose shows that he's independent, but he chooses to be dependent to let all of us know self-reliance is one of the biggest sins we could ever commit. Because if the God who doesn't need to be dependent chooses to be, how much more those of us who are created to be dependent? I always know when I write down a line, I should just preach the whole time on that one thing, and I always have to move on. We'll get, I'm, we're going to preach about Jesus. We'll get back to this, I assure you. What does this also say about God? Mary has not given birth yet. Jesus hasn't been brought out into the light of the world yet, and yet Elizabeth gets filled with the Holy Spirit. What should this tell us about our journey in life? Here's what it tells us. You don't need to ever be the best version of what you will be to have the effect that you'll have when you are the best version of yourself. Please hear that. You don't need to be your completed self to have the effect you'll have when you are your completed self. Unborn Jesus, still pregnant Mary, has somebody get filled with the Holy Spirit. Every powerful thing Jesus will do, he could do in the womb as much as he could do as a full-grown man. So you don't need to be at the end of your journey to be effective. You are effective right now if you're sharing the life of God. You don't need to get to tomorrow. You don't need to fix that thing. You don't need to get better at this. You don't need to have a few weeks go right. You are potent if you're sharing the life of God right now. Elizabeth. This is powerful. Elizabeth shows that life inside the edges is a deferred life. Jesus shows that life inside the edges is a life 
where you're sharing it with other people. I just, I, I, before I move on to Elizabeth, I just want to say one more thing about Jesus here. God created the world by doing what? How did he create the world? He, he spoke. Jesus, one of his names, especially in the beginning of John, is called the what? The Word. So God creates by speaking. Jesus is called the Word. And watch this. When Jesus is in Mary, Elizabeth says, Mary, when I heard you speak, the baby inside me leapt. See, Jesus wasn't ministering to John and Elizabeth, and Jesus wasn't ministering to Elizabeth. Watch this. The voice himself was giving voice to Mary, who was witnessing to those other two. Oh, please understand this. How many people have seen the movie A Christmas Carol? I'm about to preach A Christmas Carol right now. How many have seen the movie A Christmas Carol? Scrooge, Scrooge is a jerk the entire movie, an absolute jerk, rich beyond, and just can't be happy. Charles Dickens got that part right. But watch this. He gets saved. Let's just call it that. Three, you know, three, I'll call it the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit show up. They do everything. He gets saved. And now what is he? Now he's getting the attention of everybody he comes into contact with. He scares the maid at his house. He goes to Fred's house. He goes, he sends things to Bob Cratchit, all this stuff. Everyone is noticing him, but how does it end? Who has the last word in the story? Tiny Tim. And where's Tiny Tim when he says it? He's on the shoulders of Scrooge. So watch this. The one who now has the acclaim, the one who now has the power, the one who now has the influence, hoists up a crippled person and says, you speak. I'm going to use everything that I just got to give voice to the voiceless. That's what Jesus is doing with Mary. He's saying, I've already spoken the world into existence, so now I'm going to give you a voice, Mary. And when they hear your voice, things are going to leap. So the question that this has of the church is, whose voice are we giving voice to? Who can speak better because Salem Tabernacle gets it that wouldn't have been able to speak at all? Who's walking through life crippled that we're hoisting on our shoulders saying, you get the last line in the movie? Who at your job has a voice because you've lent them your ears and not your mouth? I have spoken for the majority of my life in a way that ends conversations, not invites them to continue. And I'm telling you, as God is my witness, I got on my knees and repented of it when I read that part of the story. Our voice should bring conversation, not shut it down. We should speak in a way that makes it easier for other people to speak. And one of the best ways we communicate is listening. Mary's voice went from an unhearable face in the crowd to bringing the Holy Spirit to Elizabeth because the word was giving her voice. The voice that thundered in Genesis gave Mary voice. Who has voice because the church is here? Now we can go to Elizabeth. I'm sorry, I forgot. I have a note here that says preach Scrooge, and so I forgot. (laughs) There's a lot of things I'll skip. (laughs) Elizabeth is life inside the edges because she's a deferred life. Watch this. This is kind of funny. Elizabeth got pregnant really old. Barren her whole life. Finally gets pregnant. Finally can walk around like everyone who said our family's cursed. (laughs) All of a sudden, she's finally pregnant. And here comes 16-year-old Mary. Hey, I'm pregnant. Shut up. 
Can I have two seconds? Can we celebrate me for two seconds? Get out of here. I mean, honestly, like, let's just be real for a second and, and forgive me, but like, if we were Elizabeth, we'd be like, you don't even know who the dad really is. Like, come on. We'd have just put it all out on the table. We'd have put it all out on the table. Because we can't handle someone else having what we wanted and not getting celebrated when we finally get it. We can't handle this. Watch what Elizabeth does. How is it that the mother of my Lord would greet me with her presence? Blessed are you among women. And blessed is the fruit of your womb. I know my pregnancy is a miracle, but this miracle is going to defer to that one. I know my miracle is from God, but yours is God. Watch this. Watch this. Elizabeth defers to Mary. Eventually, she gives birth to John, and John starts baptizing. And then one day, John's disciples come up to him and say, John, They're all leaving you to go be with Jesus. And John says, I rejoice because the bridegroom has the bride. I must decrease so he can increase. Who did he learn that from? He learned it from his mother. He learned it from his mother. We, life inside the edges, a deferring life, a life where we are more excited about what other people have than we are mad about what we don't have. You just have to let things linger once in a while. That life that's more excited about what someone else has than mad about what we don't have, that life produces a Christian genealogy. And the offspring of that life start to do it as well. Elizabeth, I'm so excited that God made me pregnant, but blessed are you among women. And then 30 years later, John, don't worry if people are leaving me. The whole point was to get them to Jesus anyway. Are you the Christ? I'm the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way for him. Where'd he learn that from? He learned it from his mother. Life inside the edges is a shared life. Life inside the edges is a deferred life. And then with Mary, we learn that life inside the edges is a gathered life. It says that she went with haste to go greet Elizabeth. She didn't celebrate blessing privately. She gathered. This is where you get a theological term called theotokos, which means the church as mother. This is where you start to see what the church is meant to do. The church is meant to receive this fruit from the Holy Spirit and then quickly run and gather people. So she goes with haste to Elizabeth. To the extent, and this really and, and makes perfect sense biologically, that Mary's going with haste connects with Jesus, a shared life. Mary's going to connect with people because what is in her is a shared life. So to whatever extent we try to save our life from other people, we are not living the life of the church or the life that God has called us to. This gathering right here sets the tone and tenor for every other gathering we will ever have. Because if we don't gather here first, then where we do gather is church, and that turns into idolatry. We gather here, and like it says in the book of Revelation, the river of life starts in the sanctuary, 
but it doesn't stay there. So for people who think I should never go to church or people who think my, oh, the only safe life is in the church, both wrong. The balance is the river of life starts here, but it flows out there. It heals here, and then the healing flows out there. We eat from the tree of life here at the table, and then we go and become the tree of life out there for the world. But watch this. When Mary is told you're going to have a baby, she says, be it unto me according to thy word. What does she do? She says, I don't understand, but I'll obey. 33 and a half years later, her son is bent over in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating drops of blood. And at a moment of decision, he says, Father, let this cup pass. But then the mother who raised him shows up. And he says, nevertheless, not my will, thy will be done, which is to say, nevertheless, be it unto me according to thy word. Both John and Jesus, at the most crucial moments of their lives, say what their mothers said. When you live life inside the edges, we create a Christian genealogy. It begets itself. We're here because somebody else got Jesus. It's a shared life. It's a life of deferring to others. It's a life of gathering. Watch how this concludes. Elizabeth was secluded. Pregnant, but secluded. Mary runs to where Elizabeth is. And when Mary gets to Elizabeth, the Holy Spirit happens. Do we see that? Mary, Elizabeth is secluded. Mary runs to the seclusion like the church is supposed to do. And the Holy Spirit happens. Watch this. Their offspring. John is out in the wilderness. He's secluded. And Jesus runs to the seclusion, and he sees the heavens torn open, and the Holy Spirit happens again. Elizabeth is secluded. Her offspring was secluded. Mary runs to the seclusion. Mary's offspring runs to the seclusion. And in both cases, the Holy Spirit happens. When the church runs to the seclusion of other people, the Holy Spirit happens. When the church runs into the building, the Holy Spirit happens. Shame on us for using the phrase boundary to eliminate us from being with other people. John followed his mother into seclusion. Jesus followed his mother running to the seclusion. Maybe we should be like our mother, Theotokos, the church. Run to seclusion and the Holy Spirit will happen. Are we like the church when we leave this building. We all gathered today. The Holy Spirit happened, amen, once again with our children in the room. I'm not going to let go of that. It's amazing that that's happening. Are we going to leave here and be like what happened here? Are you going to be like a Sunday morning service wherever you go? That's a good question, I suppose. Coming to the table of the Lord is us coming to the one we're supposed to be like. Coming to the table of the Lord is coming to the one we're supposed to be like. He took all of his life 
stared his betrayer in the face and said, this is my life given for you. Can we gather here, receive that life, and leave here and go look at the ones who are backstabbing us? Go look at the ones who are betraying us and say, this is my life given for you. Maybe the Holy Spirit will happen. You've heard me say this before, but if I see one more sign that says, keep Christ in Christmas, I'm going to be on YouTube. Someone's going to get me on Facebook Live (laughs) fighting the sign, like physically fighting it to the ground. You can't take him out of Christmas. I need Jesus to keep me in Christmas. I don't need to keep Christ in it. We need to be kept in Christmas. We have to say, this is my Christmas given to you. And listen to me. There are times, like Jesus, that we have to be at the mercy of people who don't deserve it. And the church world will look at us and say, you shouldn't be there, you should be here. But Jesus put himself at the mercy of the one of those who needed his mercy. There's times where Jesus was ridiculed for not being in the synagogue because he was sitting with tax collectors and sinners. And I'm telling you right now, when you're nourished here, there will be moments where you have to go and defer to people who have no skin in the game, and God is going to do something in those moments. He's going to. Sometimes I don't want to see you here because I want to know that where you are, church is happening. Sometimes. 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 I wanted to make sure I got every, I, I turn around to pray and everyone's gone like, oh, oh, he's, he's for real? Cool. <laughs> Who wants the Holy Spirit to happen in places besides here? We have to run to it. I just feel like I want to say this last point. This isn't, this isn't from here. This is just a conversation I had with somebody on, I don't know what day it is anymore, Friday. Sometimes love is going to pull you in two different directions. You might look like this. Getting pulled. If love doesn't scar you up from both sides of the coin, It's not Christ's love. What do I mean? Who nailed Jesus to the cross? The unchurched world and the church world both had a hand in it. So if the decisions you make to love other people don't get some church people mad, you're not being like Jesus. And if the decisions you make to love other people don't get unchurched people mad, you're not being like Jesus. You have to die with scars on your body from the way that you loved like Jesus. Because here's what I don't want to see. I don't want to get to heaven and have Jesus have more scars than me. I don't want my body to look pristine and his looks all marked up. Because I'd realize right away I didn't love like you. When we see him, he's going to have scars. We better have scars. Love should pull you in directions. It should make you do unorthodox things. It should ruffle feathers of people around you. It should cause there to have to be deep and meaningful conversations so you can explain why you're doing what you're doing. But if people are going to get saved, we can't love in a box. We can't love according to a system. We can't love according to a liturgy. And you know how much I love all this, but we can't love according to a liturgy. We have to love according to a person, and that person got marked up because of the way he loved. 
The real Christian message is I went to a manger because people need me down in a manger. Who's willing to go to one of those? I will say the rest of that tomorrow night when we all come here. And I talk about how I was, I was making a reservation for a hotel this weekend. And they said, would you like the King Suite? And I'm like, how much is it, though? <laughs> like, yes, I would like it. But it really depends on if I'll actually have it. Because I'm living my life inside the edges, I just don't go get what I want. We're just saying things now. Whatever. But then I thought to myself, when they say, would you like a king suite, you're expecting to hear things like a king-sized bed, a jacuzzi, and all this stuff. His came with a manger. And it's what he wanted. Not because there wasn't room for him. He would have chosen it if there was room for him in the end. Are we willing to do that? Are we willing to do that? Are we willing to go to the lowest? To have the possibility that the Holy Spirit happens in somebody's life. Let's stand to our feet this morning. Holy Spirit, as we get ready to come to your table... We pray that you would sanctify this bread and this cup and that you would make them for your people the body and blood of Jesus. Overshadow this meal so that we'll have an encounter with you at it. And I pray that you would also overshadow us, that as we come to this table, our question wouldn't be, what is the mystery of the bread and the cup? But the question would be, what is the mystery of what you're doing in our life as we walk toward it? I pray that as we come toward this meal, that you would run like you did with the prodigal son out towards us, that this meal would chase us halfway down the aisle, that we would feel your love, that you would anoint us for the work of the ministry, that you would feed us on the body and blood of Jesus and make us like him, Holy Spirit, so that when we leave here, we leave here eucharistically, We leave here saying to the world, this is my time, this is my talent, this is my treasure given to you, even if you don't deserve it. I pray that as we start this year, this church will become very pregnant with the fruit of the Spirit. And when we walk around with this fruit of the Spirit, and we speak simple words like, good morning, something will leap in somebody else because the voice is giving us voice. I pray that we wouldn't have to preach sermons at work, that our very language, our greeting, would have a different voice to it. We thank you for being a good, good father and for feeding us on this most precious bread line every Sunday. In your name we pray. Amen. The ushers will release you from the back to the front. Come toward the one that we want to be like. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.